Native peoples weren't just moving through the landscape without having any effect on it. It wasn't true that they were just, you know, striding through forests, um, harming nothing at all, and you know, they, they, you know, this kind of unrealistic picture of how anybody would engage with their environment is also being overturned by this new research. This new research shows that, that people engaged in the environment and modified it in ways that made it more beneficial for people in all kinds of really interesting ways. I think is a really important insight, and partly because it counters some of the old rhetoric in favor of colonialism, the sort of story of native peoples not cultivating the land is connected to that bad history of justifying colonialism. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for, for joining me. I, um, I think this might be a little bit of a strange one to, to draw people into. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm really fascinated by sort of environmental factors and the way that they've changed things for humans over time. Um, and then this, this, the origin story of the potato kind of was what grabbed me initially. Um, but I feel like, have you, how has it been for you sort of saying, I write books about potatoes? Like you have two books just on the potato, right? As well as, you know, a lot of other research that you do and um, lots of articles that, um, focus on just that as a way to tell history but how, how have you found it sort of bringing people in and talking to them that way well there's been a bit of a difference between the way that academics have responded and the way that non-academics have responded so and one of the things that i've been interested in over some years is how to try to make the histories that i want to tell things that makes sense to people who aren't academic historians. So, I mean, I'm, I'm an academic historian. It's not that I don't want to talk to, to the academy. And that's, I mean, you can tell that in a way from reading the book, that that's, that's the voice in some ways that comes very naturally to me. But I also really don't think there's any point for our doing a lot of history if it's actually just staying very hermetically in the world of professional historians, what we want to be doing is showing why history is relevant and matters. And so I've been interested in trying to think about how to tell those stories that we want to tell in ways that make sense to people who, who aren't professional historians. And one of the things that I've learned is that food is a very, very good way of doing that because people understand food. So if you say to somebody, I'm writing a history of the potato, people have something to say about it and they understand that and then yeah. you know, you can then have a conversation. And whereas if you say, Oh, I'm writing about the emergence of liberal governance in the eighteenth century, you know, some people might be very interested. Other people will say, Oh, well that sounds very complicated. So so I mean, part of what I found is that it's I mean, actually more than just that people react to it, but that talking about potatoes really seems to give people a way of talking about themselves. Hmm, so interesting. People have a response and they say, oh, my father manufactured potato harvesting equipment. Or, oh, we went to Peru and there was an extraordinary variety of potatoes. It was really interesting. I don't know. I didn't know about that. Or my grandmother had this particular way of cooking potatoes that I still has an impact on me. So there's, you know, somehow it's a way that people connect 
in a way that I think if you said I'm working on carrots, I don't think it would have the same. No, well, I mean, we've we've made carrots so very homogenous and... Um, yeah, well, they're all straight and orange, right? But as you said, with going to Peru, like, I think there's something really exciting about, like, a black potato or a really long potato or something, you know? And it's something that's like, well, I can connect with this because I love potatoes. You know, I eat them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and dessert. Um, but this is something wildly different. Well, I don't think it's unique, but I do think it's special. And I think that's part of the reason that I wanted to... to talk about the potatoes global career because it is an exceptionally successful global migrant it's traveled all over the world and people think of it as a very ordinary foodstuff in almost all parts of the world so it's it's unusual in that regard and that it's not geographically pinned the way many many foods are there i mean other foods are like that we could chili peppers also have a certain global quality i was listening just yesterday actually to a, a radio broadcast about a new book on the history of the chili pepper in china talking about how chili peppers which also come from the americas like potatoes how they've become so embedded in chinese cuisine and in the cuisines of regions like sichuan etc so there are other foods that also traveled very successfully from a, from the Americas to everywhere in the world. But potatoes are particularly remarkable in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And and I th as well, potatoes, we have... Th there are a lot of instances where it's so embedded in the national food, you know, like here it's sort of like bangers and mash. Um, Russian vodka is made from potatoes. I was really, um, really, really interested to find out when sort of preparing a little bit for this, that 60% um, of the foods that we sort of, that are common now, came from the Americas during that age of exploration, right? How, how come the Americas were so blessed with so many amazing crops? So yeah, that was a really, that's a really important moment in human history and certainly in culinary history, but, but much more broadly as well. So people, there was a term that was invented in the 1970s by a historian called Alfred Crosby, who wrote a really pioneering book called The Columbian Exchange. And so that's Columbian as in Christopher Columbus. And he argued that one of the major impacts of European invasion and colonization of the Americas was the dissemination all around the world of a whole array of really important foodstuffs. And so he was, and he called. So he called this exchange, this movement of foods from the Americas to everywhere in the world, and from Europe and the Old World into the Americas. That ex, that movement he called the Columbian Exchange, and uh. it clearly was really transformative. Because I mean, that's what, I mean, not just to talk about very simple culinary examples, not you know bigger historical impacts. That's what took tomatoes to Italy. That's what took chili peppers, not just to China, but also to India, along with potatoes, along with tomatoes, things that now feature largely in the subcontinent's cuisine. It's also what took peppers to Hungary, where you get, you know, chicken paprikash as a classic dish. It's took sweet corn or maize to Venice and that region around there, which is what gives us polenta, that typical, typical dish of the Veneto. And it brought roast potatoes to Britain. It brought vanilla to ice cream everywhere. It brought chocolate to Switzerland and all around the world. 
it brought tobacco to smokers everywhere. So there was a huge <laughs> transformation of foodstuffs and seasonings and flavorings that, that resulted from the thing. It also brought a whole variety of foods from Europe and Eurasia and Africa to the Americas. So the, the fl mm. flows went, went both ways. And I mean, many of those, those movements were absolutely disastrous for humanity. And that's what brought sugarcane to the Americas, which was not a native crop to the Americas, but then became the primary, not the only, but the primary driver for the enslavement of you know, 12 million West Africans who were forcibly taken to, to labor and, and die on plantations in the Americas to grow sugarcane. So that was not a that was not a crop native to the um, to the Americas. Coffee actually also, which was grown largely with enslaved labor, doesn't come. In. Coffee doesn't come from Brazil, for example. It, it comes from from the Middle East. So there was a huge trend. But you asked why was why did this happen? So I think it happened largely because the Americas had been um, Cut off is the wrong word because it's a vast region. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't cut off from anything, but it is <laughs> geographically separate from the rest of the Americas since the land bridge in the Bering Strait basically had disappeared, uh -huh. with possible some exceptions of people traveling from Pacific Islands into the west coast of South America. There's some really interesting work on how people were traversing the Pacific. But, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so there was oh, movement oh, oh, coming that way. And mm -hmm. also, of course, when we know that the Vikings were in, in North America mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. But it was kind of popping in and out, right? But whereas everywhere else was very much interacting and we're trying to figure out how to get to one another. And we had the, the Silk Road and, 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 we, and people felt like they knew what the world was made up of, right? There was this whole other side that was just doing its own thing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there had been trade, as you were saying, from between Europe, Asia, Africa, going on for a very, very long time, but not involving the Americas. And so that meant that there were a whole series of animals and plants that evolved in their own way without spreading into the rest of the world. And so that's why, I mean, Europe is also, and um, where we sit now, and Africa and Eurasia are also blessed with many foodstuffs. But they were foodstuffs that were familiar to people in, in Eurasia and Africa and in Europe. But there was this one part of the world, this big part of the world, that whose foodstuffs were unknown to everybody else. And so when they found them, I mean, was it, was it an immediate excitement for people? Was there like, look at all these amazing crops? Or was it like, oh, what, is, what are all these weird looking like roots and well so i mean there's there's an old scholarship on this which says that was the usual response <laughs> and that that europeans particularly when they got to, um, to the caribbean and then invaded mexico and then down it invaded the andean region that their reaction was to say this is all very weird it's unfamiliar it's not mentioned in the bible we don't think it's edible and i think most of that is wrong i think I mean, europeans uh. 
quickly realized that these foods were edible, at least for the people who were in the Caribbean and in Mesoamerica, because that's what people were eating. So they wrote back very interestingly saying, oh, the people in around the Aztec capital or in Mexico in general, they eat a kind of grain, which they call something like maize or maize or something. It's their bread. It's what they eat instead of bread. They don't have any wheat, so they eat that thing. So... Uh -huh. I mean, of course, they certainly knew it was edible. Whether it was good for Europeans was another question. So there was a good deal of debate about whether it was good for you to eat foods that came from very different places. Mm, interesting. Okay, that we may be suited to diets from our heritage or something. Exactly. So the idea of kind of being, you know, eating locally that we have now right. has, an, has quite a long history. So we think about eating locally right now as something that's a good thing to do environmentally, that maybe it helps link you in with the natural world where you are. But yeah. I don't know that we, we don't necessarily say that foods from right here where you are are better for you, but we have an idea uh -huh. that there's a sort of suitability between where we are and the foods that grow there that make those the appropriate uh -huh. foods to eat. And that's what people in, in the West have thought for thousands of years, and with some exceptions. So sort of little spices, for example, or things that you might flavor up your food with. That was fine to have from somewhere else, but you weren't going to build your entire diet out of cinnamon if you lived in England. You know, you would build it out of what grew there. So there was a lot of concern about whether eating foods that were very unfamiliar to the European body in particular would be dangerous to the European body. So there was, there was a lot of anxiety about that. But that was particularly because it was considered that travel was a huge stress to your body overall. That... Traveling just put your whole constitution out of whack. You you might be in a different environment. You'd be living a different daily rhythm. You'd be having a different sleep regime. You might be terribly homesick, which would upset you. That everything was just very stressful for your body, and that the last thing you should do was augment this stress by stuffing yourself with foods that your body didn't know. I suppose that might actually be relevant as well today, you know, we, we would probably say the same thing. If you're not feeling well, just have something very bland, have some bread. So, I mean, I read about um, this man, Antoine Parmentier, who, who went on quite the crusade to change people's minds, right? Yeah, if you there's a there's a street in Paris that's named after him, and if you look at the street signs, um, they say Parmentier introduced the potato to France. And if you go to there's a famous cemetery in Paris, the Père Lachaise Cemetery, where I mean all kinds of people of great note are buried there, and he's buried there. His tomb is there, and to this day, people live little leave sort of decorative offerings, little votive gifts of potatoes on his tomb. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing us. <laughs> well, yeah. So you can you can Google it and see wonderful pictures of the tomb with you know little potatoes all around it. So he, his reputation lives on as the man who brought this food to the French, and that's not. That's not entirely undeserved, but it's 
quite undeserved. So people in France had been eating potatoes for quite a long time before Parmentier. He didn't introduce potatoes to France, but he absolutely promoted them. He was, his adult life was fundamentally a, a massive crusade to encourage people to eat more potatoes, which he thought were a really super healthful food, much better than a diet built around wheat bread and he had nothing bad to say about potatoes. And so he's right to be remembered for his incredible enthusiasm for potatoes and his serious efforts in the 18th century to encourage their consumption. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, it was kind of a bit of a, an everyday food, like a, like a poor man's food almost, right? It was, it was just sort of like something that was very easy and, and it grew in a much smaller area in compared to previous like, grains that had been grown and it was very calorie dense right so it was quite cheap right I'm on the on the understanding so it was something that was just very easily accessible and a bit of um a, a bit of like well a, a staple as it is today and he sort of did he try to bring it up and make it fashionable or was it more of just just grow more potatoes it's great for the nation it was, well, it was more of the latter, although part of his campaign to try to get people to grow more potatoes for a variety of reasons why he was so enthusiastic about potatoes, and you've mentioned a whole lot of them, and there was a larger context which made um, the food supply, or what we might call food security, a real focus for governments in the 18th century in lots of European countries. So there were lots of reasons why he was looking for a, a good food. But his efforts to try to get ordinary people to eat more potatoes partly involved a, an attempt to make them fashionable. And there was a widespread belief among members of the, um, the elite in, in the 18th century that ordinary people would imitate the habits of the more wealthy, and that if the wealthy could set a good example, ordinary people would follow. And so there was, I mean, and you see this really clearly, for example, in the attempt precisely to get ordinary people to stop eating white bread and to try to eat more potatoes or at the very least whole grain bread, which there was, was also the subject of a big push in the 18th century. White bread had long been considered not just the prestige bread, but also the was without doubt not just considered, but was the most expensive bread. And it was what wealthy people generally ate. And so in the late 18th century, when there was an attempt to try to get people off white bread onto cheaper, more nourishing substances, Lots of members of the aristocracy said, oh, well, we're going to start eating brown bread. You know, everybody's going to notice and they'll all imitate us. They'll admire it and they'll say, oh, if they're doing it, it must be the right thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. This was something lots of people in Britain thought. There are lots of letters um, exchanged in the late 18th century of people saying, I have ordered everyone in my household to eat brown bread. And, you know, what a wonderful impact <laughs> this will have. And it <laughs> largely didn't work. And it was very disappointing to these members of the aristocracy who said, well, we've been eating all this brown bread and yet nobody else seems to want to eat it. So the idea that ordinary people were just imitating what wealthy people did doesn't seem to be historically borne out, which is not surprising. I mean, people's consumption practices aren't solely inspired by seeing what 
richer people do and copying them. But Parmentier tried the same the same tactic with potatoes. So he was encouraging the members of the French royal family to eat potatoes, or I think he was encouraging them to wear potato flowers in their hair as a kind of headdress and he wrote about some banquets that he'd organized where every course contained potatoes and he'd invited members of the great and good. So he certainly tried that attempt as well. <laughs> it's very much the same as today though, right? Where you see like we celebrities are paid lots of money to use a certain product or eat a certain thing and it's expected that people will follow. Um isn't this the same royalty that said let them eat cake? <laughs> They must eat potato, but let them eat cake. <laughs> um, I do find I do find that that the crop is so sort of easy to grow. I, I mean, it withstood a lot of um, diseases and and weather situations that brought previous or traditional crops down. Right, that was kind of what why it took root so well for those couple of well even today for those centuries um is that is that sort of what made it the most popular thing i think that was part of the reason that it's become such a successful global food because it really is very adaptable and it will grow in a wide variety of different climatic conditions and, and it doesn't do this all by itself it does this because Farmers, great and small, for thousands of years have been adapting potatoes and engaging in the smaller grand scale breeding that's necessary to make potatoes grow in all sorts of different environments. So, I mean, plant breeders in India in the 20th century became field leading in developing varieties of potatoes that would grow in tropical and semi-tropical conditions, for example, and potatoes originate in the colder climate of the Andes and grow, you know, that was, they, they grew in a variety of climates even in the Andes, but they weren't so much a tropical crop. So over millennia, ordinary people and also in, since the 20th century scientists have been breeding potatoes to grow in lots of different spaces. So we should give credit to people as well as to plants for, for doing that. But it's certainly very, very amenable and can grow in all kinds of different conditions. It's very calorific. It's, I mean, potatoes per se aren't super calorific in themselves, but they, for a patch of land, they're calorific in terms of what you can get out of that patch of land. If you grow potatoes, you'll get more calories by far than if you were growing wheat, for example, in that same patch of land. It's very environmentally good. They don't use very much water compared to other crops. They are full of right. vitamin C. They have all kinds of wonderful qualities, which I think were appreciated by ordinary people all around the world, which partly explain their their spread, as you were saying. Mm. So it was in the Andes where, obviously there's just lots of different um, altitudes going on and lots of, and, and they were being grown all sort of way down the coast right um, and that's what sort of hardied them up to being um, possible in all these different places. Yeah so I mean Andean farmers past and present would perhaps have a number of different bits of farmland that they would cultivate different crops on at different altitudes. So scholars talk about what they call ecological niches, 
where you might you wouldn't just have one allotment or one strip of land, but you might have yeah. different bits of land at different altitudes, and yeah, you'd grow different things on them, so that you would have yeah. access to yeah. a, a variety, quite wide variety of foodstuffs, just as you were saying. Yeah. Okay. And then, as it as sort of Europeans came along and 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 discovered them and and decided they wanted to bring them back is that how they ended up in places like India and Africa did they just sort of follow the European explorers and go along trade routes and then um, find route everywhere that's exactly right so those I mean and the people who did that are I mean I would say nameless sailors who were traveling around. There's stories in Europe about Sir Walter Raleigh or Sir Francis Drake introducing potatoes to Europe, which really can't be true. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't in the right places to be able to do that at the right time. Right. But who, even if he were, it seems that the the roots that brought potatoes, as you said, for example, to India or to China, must have been um, dependent on ordinary sailors. So we know that potatoes were getting to India by the early 1600s, for example. We don't know who took them there. Probably Portuguese sailors involved in trading expeditions going to Goa, that part of the world. And people were definitely not taking potatoes as a commercial crop. They weren't being taken by people thinking, oh, this will be a trade good. You know, I can use this to exchange for the commodities that we want from from India say they weren't thinking oh we can trade these potatoes for Indian cotton there's no evidence that that was being done or that they were being grown as a commercial crop on any large scale in that period so sailors must have been taking them to eat or because they thought they might be useful to grow and we don't really know but they they seem to have been part of what people were taking in their own independence um, small stocks of things that they traveled about with. I mean, the same seems to have been true of chili peppers as well, which also got Mm -hmm. to China, for example, by the 1590s, but not as, again, not as a trade good, but as something that people were probably taking to season up their food on the long journey. Right. So the most successful things are just because we just like them and because we want them and not something that have been brought over for the sole purpose of of whatever the journey was made for that that kind of makes me feel <laughs> well i don't know that we can say the most successful i mean going back to sugar sugar is an incredibly successful global commodity yeah. whose malevolent effects on our health now we're all very aware of and we're aware of its bad effects as i was saying earlier in terms of largely motivating the Atlantic slave trade, and it also had devastating environmental effects. I mean, it's terrible for the regions where it's grown. It desiccates the land. It leads to deforestation because people cut down trees to use the wood to heat the furnaces that fueled the sugar, um, the boiling houses and sugar plantations. Sugar is a terrible crop that has had horrible consequences for humanity and is very, very successful globally, as we know from you know the prevalence of sugar absolutely everywhere. 
But that was brought very much as a trade good. That was something that was brought. I mean, Columbus was taking sugarcane on his second journey in the hopes that he could set up a sugarcane plantation somewhere. So I wouldn't just say that the ordinary foods are the most <laughs> successful. Some of the really terrible <laughs> commercial foods were also very successful. But... Yeah, that's true. What about corn? Because that is hugely successful too, right? Corn syrup is in so many foods it sneaks its way in there we think of corn as just sort of uh you know corn on the cob that you just eat but really it's used for so many products was that did that start out as a trade good or was that just a sort of eating good that i think was more an eating food so all of these starchy staples like potatoes like sweet potatoes like corn like cassava that you mentioned earlier, those starchy mm-hmm. foods that can provide a hearty background to your diet, mm-hmm. traveled around the world, I think, as ordinary foods in right. almost all cases. I mean, everybody in the past ate very starchy diets. They starchy things, whether it was bread or a grain like rice or sorghum, or a root like a potato. That was what formed ordinary people's diets in most parts of the world. I mean, in Britain, for example, in the 18th century, I mean, that people argue about the precise numbers, but working people might eat like a pound of bread a day, that, oh which is a lot. Oh How much is that? Like a loaf? Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah. Well, it depends on the loaf. You could go and, yeah. Right, could, of course. <laughs> that if you, next, if you get a, you know, a kind of, um, hearty sourdough bread or something. You can you know weigh it and see what that comes out as. So that's a lot of bread. So starch was the thing that 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 people ate, and these starchy foods from the Americas have have yeah transformed people's diets everywhere. So that I mean, corn or maize got to West Africa by the mid sixteenth century, so that some of the enslaved people who were being you know forcibly taken across the atlantic from west africa to go and work on let's say sugar plantations in the americas would already have been eating maize in west africa it already yeah. had become common and cassava is now a major foodstuff in many parts of africa i mean i mean it's i mean just you know in uganda for example it's a super important foodstuff that comes from the um, from the americas but has now become a really important local food. Sweet potatoes reached China um, very early. Actually, there's a whole complicated story about where sweet potatoes originate, but they probably originated, well, they may have originated in the Americas, and they're now also a very common foodstuff in China. So these starchy foods have really gone everywhere, and they've settled in the places where they particularly flourish in terms of the environment. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess then what I what I meant by most successful being sort of like, they were, they were grabbed on by ordinary people, right? And then they became part of that place's diet. And as well, you know, like we were saying earlier, food is so connectable with people, you know, it becomes part of who you are, even today, you know, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian, I am on the keto diet, it, it becomes part of our sort of personal identity as well as national identity, right? And then I feel like the fact that it was these sort of everyday, you, you it's being carried around the world because we're eating it rather than for some 
you know, financial or, or um, what would be the word? I, I don't know, like other purpose um, that that has made it so such a global thing that make these foods very much just part of the overall human diet. Yeah, it's really interesting, as you said, to contrast the foods that traveled because people were eating them versus the things that traveled for trade. So that makes a potato very different from a piece of Chinese porcelain, for example, which was a trade good and was being carried across the Pacific for the purposes of trade. That's your, yeah, I agree, yeah. that's really a different thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with the sweet potato you were saying, it may have originated in America. What, is, it, is it not related to the potato potato? They're botanically totally different. So sweet potatoes, they're, um, what are they related to? They're related to bindweed, you know, that really irritating thing that grows in your garden that um, with those sort of the oh, twisty vine that... Um, oh, right. It's a, yeah, it's a garden pest. Um, and so they're a totally different botanical species. Potatoes are related to, they're related to chili peppers. They're related to aubergines. They're related to tomatoes, to a whole family called the Solanums. And mm -hmm. sweet potatoes are a totally different family. Um, different yet are cassava, which is, again, a different family. Yams from Africa are a different family. Jerusalem artichokes, another tuber that we sometimes see. Those are all botanically different. But people use them in very similar ways. But anyway, sweet potatoes were long thought to have originated in the Caribbean and uh -huh. the, the Atlantic coast of Brazil because that was where the first, that was where Europeans encountered them. And so right, Europeans okay. wrote about them and they said, this is a new thing. It's a bit like a yam from Africa. And right. So for, for insofar as people were, historians were interested in where these things originated that was the answer probably in the caribbean and lately there's been some really interesting research by ethnobotanists and people who use quite different types of sources that suggest that maybe sweet potatoes either originated in the pacific or had a separate development in the Pacific, that they might have originated in several different places, that there wasn't necessarily a single point of origin, but that there are several different varieties of sweet potato, and some of them may have originated in the Pacific. And so Pacific Islanders who eat potatoes may have been eating them long before Europeans ever got to the Americas. And so it's possible that potatoes dispersed around the Pacific through a process that had nothing to do with the European age of exploration, if that makes sense. Right. I, uh, what I think is really fascinating about your work is that we have these sort of what's known about history from what the Europeans wrote, because traditionally those have been the sources that have been available, right? Native Americans didn't write a lot. They, they use a lot of oral history techniques and so we had to kind of go off what Europeans were telling us, which has got a, a whole load of problems that I'm sure you don't want to get into, but um, skewed history and, and has told the globe what is important and, and who did what, which is, um, I think what's really exciting about the times right now is like, as you were saying about research by ethnobotanists and sort of the use of new scientific 
make work in what has happened before. We can kind of learn things that may have happened a different way. And, and I mean, how much of that work is, how much of that is making up your work right now using sources that aren't so traditional to tell things a different way? It's a really good question. I mean, to my mind, the some of the really the most exciting stuff that's happening in history right now has to do with the way in which historians have got interested in climate change as a historical uh-huh. topic and are talking to scientists who are amassing data from you know tree rings or a whole range of different types of source to try to construct a history of climate. And that's it's challenging for historians because it, it means that we either need to be collaborating with people from other disciplines who have expertise that we might not completely understand and we might not have the technical Uh knowledge to evaluate some of the science that's that might we might want to draw on or we have to learn those skills so it's i mean this is the challenge whenever you try to work it with drawing on expertise from different areas you you either collaborate and let other people do things or you try to learn it yourself so you can do it but the result has been that histories of of environment and climate have begun to really transform how we think about the past and have allowed us to put climate into the historical narrative so we don't just think about places and people but we also think about what's happening in terms of the larger climate which I think is very much in tune with things that with what we want to think about today. So it's not a coincidence. Historians don't just sort of sit in an ivory tower and think, you know, it would be very interesting to think about climate in the past. We're influenced by what's going on now, just like everyone is. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, taking into account the environmental factors, it, it makes a huge difference in people's lives, what their environment is and how it's changing and where they what decisions they might make based on that situation that they're in it's very very interesting and um sort of going back to the potato I, I because it was so hardy didn't it, it, it i mean there were times the little ice age for example which is um something around the 16th century i believe right where it got very very cold for a period of time was the the potato played a role in that i'm guessing because it it was a crop that could survive that's an interesting question. So that's actually something I haven't thought about, about the extent to which, so I mean, in the um, mid 17th century, when, you know, famously the Thames would freeze over and things like that, this is the so-called little ice age, as you said, whether that was part of the spread of the potato, that is a really interesting question in terms of its, um, I need to think about that more. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> maybe maybe look into it I don't know if, um, if something would come up there but it's something that I'm really really quite interested in is how people make decisions have made decisions over time about um, of what to do because of I mean I, I did a research project on Native Americans and, and the, uh, in the earlier colonial period and how what they did and the changes that they made upon meeting the colonists um, in terms of what they grew to sell to them and trade to them and how they moved around the area changed the area. And it was very, very difficult because, as we were saying, there wasn't a whole lot of resource material there available to tell me much. So I, I looked into a lot of sort of 
tree rings um, to, to see how things grew and um, changes in the sort of like uh, water ecology at the time. And it was really, really fascinating because it felt like I was part of a new generation of people who were thinking about exactly that, as you were saying, how now we should be, in the last few decades, we've been taking more into account what the environment was doing because we're understanding now what the environment can do, right? Yeah, and it, and as you were saying, it, it drives us to look for new sources. And those the sources are there. and we, we just need to think about it differently. So, for example, I mean, the point that you were making about the ways in which Native peoples in the Americas modified the environment through which they moved, I think is a really important um, insight and partly because it counters some of the old pro the old rhetoric in favor of colonialism that started to emerge from the 1500s or so when Europeans were then traveling you know in wider and wider circles invading more and more parts of the world and one of the standard justifications for why it was okay for Europeans to do this was that people in other parts of the world didn't use the lands that they happened to possess properly. There was this long-standing idea that if you didn't use your resources, including your landscape, your environment, properly, it, you, it didn't really belong to you, right? It wasn't really yours. If you just kind of frittered it away, it didn't belong to you. And so there was this long-standing tendency to denigrate agricultural practices of people in other parts of the world saying, well, they don't do proper agriculture like we do in Europe. I mean, they don't know how to cultivate things. We, you know, we, we need to come and show them how to do it. It will be to their benefit, in fact, because they'll learn proper agriculture. Okay. So the sort of story of native peoples not cultivating the land is connected to that bad history of justifying colonialism. It's also connected to a sort of romantic story of... Um, indigenous people living completely in harmony with nature in in a way that's sort of, well, just romanticized. So it's not to say that native peoples were devastating the environment around them to the extent, in fact, which um, Europeans certainly did, but that native peoples weren't just moving through the landscape without having any effect on it. It wasn't true that they were just, you know, striding through forests um, harming nothing at all and you know they, they, you know this kind of unrealistic picture of how anybody would engage with their environment is also being overturned by this new research which shows that, that people engaged in the environment and modified it in ways that made it more beneficial for people in all kinds of really interesting ways and to make this long story and to bring it back to the point that you were making we can see this by looking at unfamiliar sources. So, for example, in the Amazon, it's been noted for some time that there's certain areas that have a very distinctive type of soil. There's a kind of dark black soil that accumulates in certain parts of, of the vast forest. And so scientists have been asking, where did that originate? How did that happen? And it seems that these areas of this dark black soil are places where indigenous peoples living in the forest had been engaging in cultivation, had been growing things or effectively gardening. And they'd been, you know, we could sort of in shorthand say, you know, manuring and enriching the soil. 
in particular yeah. ways that allow that region, that, that soil to be particularly fertile. We've got no written traces about these practices particularly, but we have the evidence of the soil that something made that happen, that didn't just occur naturally. And it makes sense that humans were doing that the same way in these forests, which, you know, seem perhaps, you know, vastly out of scale of any human interaction, that certain species that are useful to some of the groups of people who live in the forest tend to be concentrated in certain areas, and that there are more of these helpful trees and bushes in certain places, far more likely than would have occurred just through natural reproduction of these plants. So it seems likely that people were moving things and they were planting saplings of trees in places where they wanted them to be. So we can read the forest, if we know how to do it, to see evidence of human agency and human engagement in, in feeding themselves. That is so cool. That was that was kind of one of the the outcomes of the research that I wrote was um, sort of to sort to attack this idea. It a very kind of racist idea that you know Europeans and some um, Asian populations were the only ones doing agriculture. They were the only ones actively changing the land for their benefit. And 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 now you know once we disregard um, the imp- well not disregard the importance but once we sort of balance out the importance of European sources with other kinds of evidence that we can find now um, we can prove that you know humans are humans. We we have the same wants and needs and you know we're gonna try to do things that are going to benefit us. And it's almost this idea that with uh, Native Americans or indigenous peoples in many places around the world living in harmony with nature, that they're almost like they were treated more closer to animal populations, that they were they were not so evolved as white people um, and the white races. White, they were more nature and, and white people were more civilized and... Um, and you know they did those kind of things um and yeah that's been the held belief for um for a while up until the last few decades and it's really exciting now to see i had no idea about that that's like so interesting and it's so deserved that um we just we think about our ancestors in those places as well as as the same right this is like this is a question that i always ask people um but usually i'm asking scientists who um are you know there there is so much um so so many areas that they could look for for evidence but with a historian i think it's quite a harder question but now i feel like maybe it's not a hard question in that if there were if there was any source that you could find now that you could access written or otherwise um to find out something about the potato or, or you know, that age, what would it be? What would you want to know? What's like? What's so like? sources that really exist or sources that I don't think exist, but I wish did? Yes. So like, yes, if you could find a, a letter between two people or, um, I don't know, yeah, evidence of... Yeah. Yeah. So not yeah. something that I'm really looking for because I think it's out there, but something that I wish were out there. Yeah. If it could, what question do you want to answer the most? I think is. I would be really interested in 
evidence from the those sailors who were taking potatoes to the western coasts of India in the 1600s. Why they were doing that? Why did they take potatoes? Who was it and why? Or the ordinary people in the mountainous regions in North China who were growing potatoes on their small plots of land long before 18th and 19th century sources started commenting on them. What did they think of them? Why were they doing that? Or the people in Spain who were beginning to eat them again by the late um, the you know the late 1500s early 1600s that's what i would be really interested in is the comments from the people from other parts of the world when they first encountered potatoes not the scientists we have reports from botanists writing in the the late 1500s saying oh we have this new root it's come from the americas we don't know very much about it it seems very interesting we have those sources i'd be really interested in more information about the ordinary people who were really the motor that fueled the potatoes journey around the world what they thought oh, what do you imagine they they think like with sailors what what would you what would you want to know yeah, I guess I'd be really interested in general. Um, what what they were taking with them? What did they what did they carry in their pockets and their trunks and their bags as they journeyed? <laughs> so not just the food, but in general, we and we know we, there's a certain interesting yeah. scholarship on sailors who seem to have been sort of trendsetters in various ways. I mean, it's, it's not surprising. You know, sailors go from place to place yeah. and they pick things up in one place and they drop them off somewhere else and they introduce fashions and they introduce yeah. practices of all sorts because they're so mobile. So it's not surprising that they were spreading new food ideas. But I would just be very interested in hearing the voices of those sailors and why they chose to travel with the particular things they, they took. There's something so exciting about just ordinary life, right? When we go to museums and we see like the way ordinary people lived and the reconstructions of their outfits or their houses or something like that. Like that's the stuff because you imagine that's what I would be doing if I was born 500 years ago. It's something so, it fits so well with what you were saying earlier about um, just the relevance of history coming from the people who are still living today and just feeling like you want to connect with what used to be. Um, do you think potatoes will always be as popular as they are now? Well, always is a big statement, but I see no reason to think that they're going to diminish in popularity. And there's been a sort of... Um, well, the pandemic has been good and bad for potatoes. It's been bad for potato, the potato harvest. I mean, just as lots of other crops have been having um, difficulties in terms of getting people to harvest them. And also because of particularly during the period of really strict lockdown in many countries, the demand for potatoes from restaurants in particular plummeted. So crops didn't have a destination. I mean, the same way that we heard about quantities of beer being discarded in Britain because brewers didn't have the pubs to supply and they didn't have the bottling facilities to convert beer destined for pubs. I know. I mean, yeah, I mean, millions of liters of beer were apparently discarded just because, the, you know, there was no, 
outlet for them. The same with milk, that farmers in this country were discarding milk as all the coffee shops were shut. So okay. there's been a problem with potatoes from that point of view. Oh yeah, on the same... a, in Belgium, didn't they sort of do a big um, news alert saying, please, people, buy and eat potatoes because we have so many just like sitting here. Didn't... Oh yes, I I think I, I can send you a link to it. It was it was quite funny. It was like eat chips, <laughs> take the potatoes. Remember that rings a bell. Maybe, I'd, but send me the. I would be yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly okay. why. That would be exactly see. why. But at the same time, that there was this sort of crisis in the world of commercial potato growing. There's also been well, as I mean, as we may have encountered with people we know, a renaissance of people trying to grow things in their own back gardens or yards. Or I mean, there's been it's been there's been a, a run on seeds in general in Britain. So there are all kinds of things that are now very difficult to get hold of. The I mean, greenhouses became quite in short supply. If you wanted to order a greenhouse and and seeds for plants and vegetables, there was also a period when there were really short supply because people were trying to grow their own food. And potatoes yeah. are certainly a super good food to to grow if you want to get a lot of nourishment out of a small compass of land. So they've yeah. they've seen a sort of renaissance on that level at the same time that the trade has been in a bit of a crisis. But I see no indication that potatoes are on their way out. There, um, there's some evidence that the terrible potato blight that devastated Ireland and other parts of Europe in the mid 18th century is staging a return. So the late blight may come back. But other than that, I wouldn't say that there are particular reasons to fear for the future of the potato, the way there are about bananas, which are in really bad shape because of a, a virus, or is it a virus, a pathogen of some sort that's damaging banana plantations. I would say the potato is doing okay. What, what's this, um, the late blight may come back? Is this the same pathogen, the same disease from before? Yeah, yeah, and apparently we, I mean, so this was, my mother is a, is a plant breeder, and so she um, talks to pl other plant breeders, and she says apparently there is concern that this, um, that blight, that, that pathogen that was responsible for the, the Irish Great Famine, maybe staging a return and that we don't really have good um, countermeasures to put in place. But part of the reason that that virus was so devastating or that pathogen was so devastating in um, Ireland was because the variety of potatoes that was being grown was, was largely one. It was, it was really a monoculture and that, as we know, you know, things, pathogens rip through monocultures, which is why bananas are in trouble. But um, potato cultivation globally isn't so monolithic so even god forbid that the, this comes back i don't think it'll have the same effect as it did just in ireland in the 1840s mm -mm. we need variety and variety keeps us safe. i mean that's again why uh it was so successful in the americas right is because they they bred they, they sort of stretched it out um, and made lots of different varieties so that there was always something that worked. Um, it would it would be a real shame um, if that did happen though, because as we were saying, potatoes are really, uh, they're not very water intensive in comparison to other sort of like carb foods, right? So, it, you know, they seem like a good idea to keep in the diet, keep promoting as we 
sort of walk ourselves into climate change. I agree. That was for that reason that in 2008, the, the UN declared International Year of the Potato. <laughs> I did not know about that. We need another one of those, although... <laughs> How often do you eat potato? I, I, I hardly ever eat it, but thinking about today, I had some for dinner. <laughs> well, I eat them quite a lot because I get a lot of my vegetables from a local farm, which is a wonderful place um, called Canal Side that I, I couldn't recommend highly enough. And they grow a lot of potatoes and I mostly, so I eat a lot of, my vegetables tend to consist of what I get from the farm's share. And we get a lot of potatoes, so I eat a lot of potatoes. And I, I like potatoes, but I mean, I had, I've had potatoes for the last four nights for dinner, partly because we've got a <laughs> kilo and a half on Saturday. That is such a, a very good outlook on food, to go source locally and then eat what you've got. Um, we all need to, to be thinking like that. But from knowing what you do about... Um, how crops sort of diversify and how um, they get they got domesticated initially before um, the sort of global spread. How does that make you feel about like GMOs and crop gene editing and things like that? Well, so this is certainly not my area of expertise. No, but just your opinion as as a as a human, as someone who eats food. <laughs> yeah. So there's. I mean, I guess there are. There are two dimensions to the debate about it, as I understand it. So one has to do with the actual practice of gene editing and the new technologies, the CRISPR technology that is, is being developed and the sorts of plant genetic engineering that's been going on. So on the one hand, there's a debate about whether that's a good thing in itself. And then the other side of it has to do with the way in which those um, genetically modified plants get marketed and sold and is connected to critiques of Monsanto and to the ways in which these um, these genetically modified foods have been embedded in larger political economies and power structures. And so, I, I mean, those are connected, but they're not entirely the same. So it's very clear that the way in which the plants that were associated with the Green Revolution in the 1960s, for example, it's very clear that a number of those hybrid varieties had good effects in, in some ways in terms of actually reducing famine and terrible effects in others in terms of increasing rural insecurity and reducing the autonomy of small farmers in many parts of the world. So, I mean, that seems to have had a very, and there's a huge debate about that. And, uh, you know, for people who sort of saying, well, in the end they were good or in the end they were terrible, but it's clear that they were, they had both qualities. So, I mean, there's that, and that has to do particularly with the way in which um, these hybrid F1 hybrids don't reproduce. You need to buy more seed. You need to use a lot of fertilizer to make a lot of them grow productively. I mean, all, there's a whole story about that. The other has to do with more an ethical debate about whether we think it's right to be engaging in these types of, of interventions, whether they're likely to have unexpected consequences in other parts of the environment, which is sort of a different type of debate. Yeah. So I guess that's, yeah. yeah, I would say there's sort of, you know, two debates really about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the first one, what you were saying about um, how, how they sort of like have grabbed onto farmers and uh, have forced a, a, 
a system upon us all um, is is quite a scary topic to get into. But with the the sort of morality about um, changing a crop or changing um, any part of nature for a human benefit, I, I feel like when you really boil it down, it's really difficult to argue because we've been doing it for thousands of years. That's exactly how we got here. That's why we have edible potatoes. That's why we have pet dogs. That's why we, you know, have cattle. It's, I, for, um, I feel like it's scary now because it can be so precise and it's so, we're so good at it um, in a way. And so then the power that um, humans could have seems so much greater and potentially there should be limits put in place. Um, but yeah, in terms of the ethics of whether it's right or wrong, I I feel like that, that argument was one, you know, in the fertile crescent <laughs> 12,000 years ago. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I mean, I agree about that. I mean, the number of varieties of genetically modified foodstuffs that are licensed for for sale is really tiny. So it's like I think like four different things. So it's not it's not that it's everywhere. It's a very small variety of foods that have those licenses. But I agree with you. Intervening with um, and engaging in the processes of domestication and what I guess gets called improvement has been going on, as you said, since the Fertile Crescent. That's a very good way of expressing it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, I also read like um, one bit of uh, news when I, I just Googled potato news to see what would come up, what's happened recently. And um, I read that scientists are trying to develop... Um, out of the potato that loves the salty soil in Peru, um, they're trying to sort of um, pull it to its extremes because the environment on Mars is apparently very saline. And so if we were to colonize, we may take the potato with us. <laughs> so life follows fiction or follows film. <laughs> right, right. So it's... Is this like in the Martian? Something. Or? Oh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Matt Damon. He grows potatoes on Mars. So. Oh right. So everybody already knew about that. Well, it's happening in real life. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. That's yeah. That's really yeah. wonderful. That's. Yeah. Yeah. The the spread of the potato continues. <laughs> I didn't realize salinity was a, a factor either. That's really interesting. Mm. I'll send you that link as well. Um, Please do. Um, it's, it's impossible um, to keep up with the world of potatoes. It's constantly on the move. Right? Exactly. It's uh, it's not done yet. <laughs> the age of exploration was not its its peak. <laughs> um, this has been really fun. Um, thank you so much um, for your time. No, it's been absolutely um, lovely. Thank you for good. being interested. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye.